Whatever it takes, there will be a global and concerted effort by governments to help with the impact of the coronavirus public health crisis on the economy. There is a risk to lives, there's daily disruption, and it's likely that business, trade and commerce could end up permanently altered. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Later on, we'll hear the thoughts of Robin Mills, a CEO of Kamar Energy and the Nationals regular contributor about how the current crisis could impact the future of the energy industry. Um, with me now, uh, down the line, is uh, Kelsey Warner, our future editor. Kelsey, how are you? Hi, Mustafa. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'd like to start with a little bit of color from this past week. We've seen a lot of action by governments, by central banks around the world. Uh, The US President Donald Trump uh, reacted after the Federal Reserve made a stunning rate cut, rather, of 100 basis points, bringing rates uh, in the US close to zero. Let's hear what Mr. Trump had to say. We want to protect our shipping industry, our crews. Uh, industry, cruise ships. Uh, We want to protect our airline industry, very important. Uh, But everybody has to be vigilant and has to be careful. But be calm. It's really working out. And a lot of good things are going to happen. Um, Kelsey, as you can hear there, Mr. Trump is in uh, perhaps typically bullish mood, ebullient after getting the rate cut that he always wanted. He always wanted the US to mimic other regions where they had near near zero interest rates. But the the circumstances, the context in which this has happened, no one perhaps could have predicted a few months ago, or very few people uh, could predict a few months ago. Um, But what we've certainly seen is there is a a, a public health crisis. Uh, People are dying. People are getting sick. Life is being disrupted. And it's what they're calling somehow the the risk or or the reality of sudden stop for businesses Mm -hmm and services mm-hmm. and economies at large. Um, and, and so really we've seen governments, central banks react in an unprecedented way since the financial crisis, which isn't quite the same scenario, but we, we're seeing a concerted effort. No, uh, um, right. You know, a very different scenario, but one that uh, we can't help but think of, you know, a little more than a decade later as, I mean, what we saw though was China, the world's second biggest economy, really grind to a halt and now it's sort of grinding back up to start up again, just as the rest of the world is grappling with its own containment strategy um, and what that means in terms of economic fallout. So yeah, now we're seeing governments, and I, interestingly, I think about what Donald Trump said was sort of these action words of protection, 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 and just um, being careful, but really just trying to, the actions of governments to sort of lift up and stimulate economies that are currently in the process of shutting down in a lot of ways. So uh, French President Emmanuel Macron uh, talked about a 300 billion euro uh, emergency stimulus in France and also a pledge not to let any business go bankrupt as a result of the the pandemic. And as, as we said, you know, that we don't want to minimize the the human the human cost here, the suffering again, the daily disruption. Uh, but you know, the the talk really is about the economic impact now, because I think for particularly because the reality has sunk in um, in in Western countries um, that this is not something that's going to go away very quickly, and we could be in for the long haul. Right, it's not something that's happening somewhere else anymore. And I think right now what we're experiencing is holding in tension sort of our public health response, which is top of mind and the most important. 
but our well-being is inextricably tied to our economic welfare. So governments stepping up rather quickly to, you know, increase liquidity, bail out or make pledges of bailing out in the future if it comes to that, uh, I think, you know, over time should calm, you know, the general population, hopefully, but so far it has not, of course, done that. And actually, we haven't, we haven't slipped into the typical blame game that, that can arise sometimes of, uh, you know, in, in politics. And in fact, governments around the world, for now at least, are in quite a benign situation to respond, to react, because this is happening everywhere. It's not like, you know, typical crises, let's say in the Middle East, where you're constantly having to explain to investors why they shouldn't overly um, react to what's happening in the Middle East, that not all um, territories and markets in the Middle East are the same just because there's conflict in one place, it doesn't affect other places. But this kind of, um, this, this this unprecedented crisis, I keep saying unprecedented because it is, is one mm-hmm. that well, you don't have to tell investors in another part of the world. You don't have to explain what's happening. They know. Everybody is experiencing it. Everyone's experiencing it. And we're all sort of experiencing it, funnily enough, in very similar ways in terms of this idea of social distancing and resorting to remote work very quickly, or um, just the stopping of travel, uh, the, sort of the end of borders for a time, um, or crossing borders. It's 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 kind of nutty, but I looked to economist Mohammed El Arian who said today or yesterday that um, right as you're saying, we must not overreact. This is not a permanent shock to our systems, but it is a, it's a shock that we're currently facing. But I wonder with all the stimulus being, stimuli being announced, how does this trickle down to the workforce? Because I think that's what we're most worried about right now is just employees really at the, at the ground level. Yeah. People want to know they're still going to have jobs um, once, right. once this subsides, right? In the UAE's first announcement really was about SNEs and protecting small businesses, which I thought was really interesting. It was a hundred billion dirham stimulus rolled out by the central bank. And a big part of that was SMEs and also, uh, you know, consumer debt as well, making sure mm-hmm. no one no one gets swallowed up on the personal or uh, business level. Right. And then Abu Dhabi stimulus, which kind of lowered fees and sort of those incidental costs that can really add up for somebody who's working, you know, for, for themselves. In a small and also business not getting or- any income because business has stopped. So they still mm-hmm. have bills to pay. So if they, the idea is that they, they get some relief on those bills and also that banks have been, have been instructed to ensure that, you know, six month cash flow issues aren't a problem um, for their customers that, you know, at least, when daily life is disrupted and we have the fear of, of our health at risk, that we can have some comfort on the economic level. Right. And I think right now what we're seeing too is some of this stuff can feel really abstract, but it'll hasten recovery. So lower interest rates, analysts are saying, you know, it's not allowing markets to react in a positive way right now because we're still so in it. But when we're looking to make a recovery, this this will really be very relevant, hopefully. So a lot of the stimuli out there will be rolling out. We saw the effect of stimuli um, at the financial crisis and how that changed economies and the way business was done, not always positively. And so I think probably looking down the line, we have to remember that you put stimulus out there, 
it's an opportunity and hopefully we've learned a lot that this opportunity will be something that will be harnessed positively again to strengthen um, our economies and our markets and our trade rather than essentially what we've allowed in the last 10 years was a lot of weak uh, companies to continue operating, which isn't perhaps good for wage inflation or opportunity or genuine real growth. Right. It it really needs to be a realization of human potential, which we're we're hopefully experiencing that sort of in microcosm right now in terms of the public health response and what the public is doing to keep ourselves, all of us, safe and healthy. Um, yeah, but the I think you know, in terms of ta- who I've spoken to, hospital leaders, immunologists, infectious disease doctors, they do say we will get through this, but you know we're still very much in it. One of the immediate. Uh, economic consequences of the coronavirus crisis has been a steep drop in crude oil prices. Uh, In the expectation of uh, falling demand, the OPEC alliance uh, of producers, which includes uh, Russia as well as Saudi Arabia, the UAE, um, had attempted to react to uh, the markets by coming up with a deeper set of cuts, but they couldn't actually agree. And the result has been that most producers have decided to remove their limits, their restraint on production. And the expectation is from next month, there'll be a lot more oil on the market. The result has been, in the end, a really historic drop in oil prices, close to levels not seen since the last slump of 2016. Uh, Robin Mills, uh, the national contributor and CEO of Kumar Energy, uh, wrote in the paper this week about the potential new energy landscape that could be created after the coronavirus uh, crisis is over. Uh, Robin joins us on the line. Robin, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good. Um, Your column was very interesting. In particular, you said that there could be seven features for this new energy landscape. Yes, I mean, obviously, we're at the still pretty early stages of this outbreak, um, and we've already seen some pretty dramatic developments, of course, with the crash in the oil price and, and so on. Um, we don't exactly know how things are going to play out, but I thought it was worth looking ahead a bit to how could the energy world look like when, and hopefully it's not too far off, but when we, we come out on the far side of this crisis. Um, so some of these things are trends which are going on today, which are going to be accelerated by, by this outbreak. Um, some of them are, are changes that could be um, catalyzed or, or caused by the outbreak itself. And so the seven are, for example, uh, the emergence of a global gas market as opposed to a fragmented one. Yeah, so this is a, a trend which has been going on for quite a while, but I think this, uh, this outbreak will give a, a further push to that. So, you know, historically, the gas market was fragmented by region. So North America was its own market. Europe was separate. Um, East Asia, Japan and Korea and so on were, were separate. Um, the Middle East were, and indeed the individual countries within the Middle East were separate as well. There was very little interconnection between these markets. That has gradually broken down over time. Um, the uh, liquefied natural gas or LNG trade has expanded enormously. And the US has emerged as, a, as, an, as an LNG exporter. And so effectively low US gas prices have been exported to the rest of the world. Um, and we've seen a crowd because of that, a crash in gas prices in, in Europe and, and Asia and in the global LNG market. But there's still been this divergence in the market between very high-priced oil-linked um, legacy contracts for gas 
and uh, and very low priced uh, in past couple of years, very low price spot prices for for, for LNG. Uh, and this has made it hard to have a, a functioning and and um, properly liquid global gas market. You know, when you've got gas that's selling uh, and some depending on the contract, it could be selling for seven dollars per million British thermal units. Uh, under an oil-linked contract, or it could be selling for less than $3 a, a, a spot. Um, now, because of the oil price crash and because of the, the great slump in demand that we're, we're seeing, and I think we're going to continue seeing, um, the oil-linked the, the oil prices have come down a lot in, in line with oil, and they're now much closer to spot prices. And we've seen a, a lot of interest in trading. We're going to have a lot of oversupply in gas, and so it can be crucial for traders and suppliers to be able to get gas off their hands and and, and move it to somebody else. Um, so this is all accelerating this process of, of interconnecting and liberalizing gas markets around the world. And it may come that we'll have a number of, um, as we do with oil, we'll have a number of regional benchmarks for gas, which are pretty closely linked around the world. So there's already a, a pretty much a common European price. There's, a US, there's been a US price for a long time. Um, there hasn't been an Asian price, but now we're seeing that the the so-called Japan-Korea marker for liquefied natural gas in Asia is, is emerging as a marker for Asia. Um, and that means that most of the main consuming regions of the world now uh, have a, a tradable and liquid price that they, they can rely on and that those prices are, are related in some predictable way. Oil prices had their worst week in 30 years. And you say that what we can probably expect in terms of, re- of a recovery will be something more slow and extended as we saw after the global financial crisis, rather than a recovery that is speedy as we may see you know, after wartime. Uh, can you speak a little bit more about what recovery may look like once we get over this sort of bunkering down we're currently in? Yes, and look, obviously we don't know when the recovery is gonna start and we don't know um, exactly what form it will take, but I think we think about the features it may have. Um, well, you know, coming out of the global financial crisis was a very slow and painful process. Um, now, I think we, we hope that the recovery out of the virus isn't like that, but I think we can expect that, that it may be. Um, there's been a, an enormous shock, a pretty much unprecedented global shock to, to, to the world economy. Um, and some regions haven't even really been touched, fully touched by this yet, but, you know, but they will be. Um, obviously, an almost near shutdown of, of air travel, um, great reduction of, uh, of, of shipping, um, all kind of consumer-facing businesses and restaurants, hotels, all this kind of stuff very badly affected. Um, and this will surely will mean a, a long period of, of bankruptcy and, and, and debts and, uh, and, and struggling companies and, and, and struggling financial, uh, personal financial circumstances for individuals. And something that um, you lead on to is that the result, one of the results of this could be a thinner, more consolidated oil industry. Is that right? Yes. So I think, you know, we talk about bankruptcy. The, the, the oil companies are under, uh, uh, under a major threat from this, particularly the high cost producers. So looking at the U.S. shale producers in particular, um, they're not fully hedged against low oil prices. Their, their costs are higher. Their decline, the decline rate of their production is high if they're not reinvesting. The financial investors in them are already getting pretty tired of not seeing returns even before the, the oil price crashed. Um, and so I think, you know, some of these companies will, will go bankrupt. Some will, will probably merge uh, to try to survive. Um, and the ones that go bankrupt, of course, those assets won't go away, but they'll be, they'll be bought up by stronger companies um, that are able to sit on them indefinitely and just wait for an oil price rebound. So 
you know, the, the big US companies, Exxon and Chevron, who, who have been getting into shale in recent years, you know, they may be the consolidators, um, but they won't be drilling very actively until the oil market has really turned around. And then, you know, we may even perhaps see mergers as we did in the late 90s. You know, we, we, saw, we saw in the late 90s, more prices were low and we had the merger of BP, Amoco and Arco. We had Total, Fina and Elf. We had Chevron Texaco and, of course, Exxon and Mobil as the biggest of them all. Um, we may see further consolidation there between some of the major oil companies, um, particularly if this is low oil prices extended for a, for a longer time. You also write uh, that we may have we may see, or we may have seen, the peak both of uh, demand for oil, but also the peak for carbon emissions, which is fascinating to think that that could be a legacy of this of this current public health crisis. Yeah, sure. I don't think we will have passed the peak for all demand yet. Uh, I mean, look, I think all demand this year is going to be far, far down from, from 2019, and no doubt about that. Uh, may well be down in 2021 as well. Uh, but ultimately, I think all demand will bounce back. I think all demand, probably, global all demand probably has a still at least a few years of growth left in it. But I think this will bring forward the peak. People were talking about a peak of oil use in the 2030s sometime, perhaps. You know, that date may well now come forward. Um, but I think we're definitely uh, very likely to have been past the peak of carbon dioxide emissions. So 2018 and 2019, CO2 emissions were roughly flat. 2020 for sure is going to be far lower, you know, because of all this interruption to the economy, shipping and uh, road transport, air travel, a big interruption to the Chinese economy, so less coal use. Now, yes, the world economy may bounce back in 2021, so on, let's hope that it does. Um, but we're seeing any, we were anyway seeing a gradual impetus for cleaner energy, improved energy efficiency, um, gas replacing coal in places like China, and of course, rising use of renewable energy, and just starting to see, see electric vehicles coming in as a, as a mainstream technology. So put all of that together, I, and I think it's hard to see, even if the economy bounces back very well in 2021, um, hard to see that, that, that we will ever regain those those levels of CO2 emissions of 2019 is at least at least one bright spot if we have turned the corner on emissions. I mean, another thing that you write about is that government stimuli around the world will likely take on sort of Green New Deal type characteristics along this theme of, you know, turning the carbon corner, as you write. But I want to ask you, my last question really is around globalization uh, and where we were at pre-pandemic as a globalized society, kind of what we're seeing now with the pandemic almost as evidence of how globalized we are in terms of its spread. But where do you see globalization going as we come out of this? I think we hear a lot of talk that this is somehow the end of globalization. Personally, I don't think it is, but I think this is obviously going to have a profound effect on globalization. Um, I think there was already concerns about supply chains, that supply chains were too China-centric, and, and the trade war with the U.S. made companies realize how exposed they were. So I think that that anyway is going to be recast. We'll see um, more varied and, and in general shorter supply chains. Um, we can think about new technologies like 3D printing. We're already seeing 3D printing being used to make emergency parts for uh, for ventilators and so on in, in this current virus uh, outbreak. Um, so this uh, this event gives impetus to things like that, which allows you to make, create parts close to the consumer instead of in, in a remote location. Um, so, but I think that the the increasing technology connectivity and the growing wealth in developing countries, anyway, will, will keep driving globalization forward. But it'll be more complicated and more contested. It won't simply be this kind of 
Western-centric and, and Sino-centric globalization, um, but it will it'll be more complicated and, and more networked. Now, this could be quite a dangerous process uh, with a potential conflicts and, and upsets. Um, however, what I hope is that we learn from this crisis is that uh, we're moving to a multipolar world, a world that's increasingly going to be challenged by climate change um, and by crises like this one. Um, and it's and it's not by we're not going to solve that with unthinking globalization, but a greater international cooperation, coordination, um, mutual trade, mutual trust has to be the key part of that solution. I mean, retreating behind our walls and our borders is not going to solve any of these crises. Robin Mills, CEO of Kumar Energy and a regular contributor to The National. You can read his column at thenational.ae. Thanks, Robin, for being with us. Um, and we'll speak again soon. Yep, thank you. And Kelsey Warner, our feature editor, uh, talking to us down the line. Uh, thanks for being with us. Um, and you will be back again next time. Thank you, Mr. Buck. Good to be here. Be well. Before we finish, here are the other stories you need to know about on thenational.ae. Saudi Aramco can comfortably meet its shareholder commitments and pay dividends, even if oil prices remain at about $30 per barrel. A surge in private jet travel is starting to wane in some regions as stricter restrictions and postponed business events ground globe-trotting wealthy executives. And Aldar Properties, Abu Dhabi's biggest listed developer, will invest 2 million dirhams in the Emirates' first social impact bond. That's it for today. If you enjoyed this show, please do subscribe or leave a review. All that remains to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. Thank you all for listening. Please join us again.